0: Good morning, Lakewood. And uh, that was the sermon, let's pray. No. <laughs> um, I am uh, very excited to be here with you all this morning, to be able to dig into God's word uh, together with you. Um, and as uh, Dave just introduced me, I am uh, a long time Lakewood attender, or semi-long time. For some of you it probably wouldn't be considered that long of a time, but for me it's been a long time. Over half of the 22 years that I have been alive. I remember coming to the Sunday morning services and going to Sunday school and attending the Wednesday night activities. And as Dave mentioned, I also had the opportunity to intern about three and a half-ish years ago. Uh, and That was an incredible experience. And while I interned, I actually had the opportunity to preach then as well. So I'm very encouraged that they welcomed me back after that because apparently that means that I didn't screw things up too bad last time. But, uh, so today, uh, before we uh, start uh, digging into the word, I just wanna uh, mention, yeah, Dave uh, mentioned as well, I am a student at Moody Bible Institute, and I owe this church a huge thank you, because you guys set me up so well for being trained in Bible uh, at Moody, Uh, because at Moody, we hold this, this book, Scripture, the Word of God, in incredibly high regard. It is authoritative. It is inspired. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is alive and powerful. And uh, the professors at Moody do an excellent job. They're very insightful, very wise. Uh, we're just constantly going to, you know, Bible is literally our middle name at Moody Bible Institute. And Lakewood shares those values with Moody. And uh, I'm very grateful for the training that I received here at Lakewood so that I was able to transition very easily and kind of had a little bit of a head start uh, starting my education at Moody. So before we dive in to my passage uh, or the passage for today, which is going to be 2 Kings 2, uh, and as you're flipping there, I'll give a little bit of uh, background as to why I chose this passage. And number one is that i really wanted to do something out of the old testament as brent and i were talking about it this the old testament is a fantastic uh section of the bible um and as Lakewood, we believe that that the entire bible bible in its entirety from beginning to end is inspired and useful and we're kind of living in a time though when frequently the old testament gets overlooked or ignored or rejected even uh that's we have the new testament now We don't really need the Old Testament so much. And so I'm gonna use an illustration that I heard from a guy named Kempton Turner. And actually for this, I'm gonna hop off the stage because I saw Brent do that a couple weeks ago and I thought that was really cool. And uh, so I'm actually gonna walk to the back here and you don't necessarily have to turn around. Very thankfully, you don't have to see my face in order to receive the word of God, otherwise we'd all be in a lot of trouble. But I'm gonna come to the back here And I have with me, also continuing Brent's nautical theme that he had a while ago, in my hands I have a spyglass. And looking at the front of the church up there, I can see the cross. And for the sake of this illustration, that cross will be uh, my relationship with Christ. Uh, And standing here, I have received the gospel message, which is the good news, uh, or the news that... Uh, In the beginning, man was created by God. However, we rebelled, uh, we fell into sin, and therefore fell short of the glory of God. The punishment for that sin is death, which is eternal separation from God. However, God, in the riches of his love and his mercy, he sent down his son Jesus to die for us, live the perfect life that none of us could, and then rise three days later, ascend into heaven, and give us hope that would for the restored relationship with him, in his eternal kingdom. That's the good news, the basic good news of the gospel message. And from right here, from where I'm standing, I'll even take off my glasses. I can still see the cross, and that's good. And technically, that's what I need, kind of in the sense of you know the, my basic calorie intake for the day. You only need so many calories, but I, you won't thrive if you only take get that base amount. Um, and in the same way we also wouldn't want to stop there. With a God as good as the God we have, with a relationship uh, so incredible, we want to know as much as we can. We want to be as close to him as we can. And that's where scripture comes in. And scripture, in this case, from where I'm standing, is like this spyglass. And for every book uh, in scripture, we go to the New Testament and I, I look at this cross and I read the gospels, and that gives me a little bit of a closer look. I can see the cross a little bit better from back here. I have a better idea of who Christ is and his intentions and what he wants in his relationship with me and where he's going. And then I go and I read the epistles, and it expands, and I can see it even still a little bit better. And with every book I read, it expands. And the New Testament, again, is good, but in the Old Testament, there's so much more. And it's what, 39 uh, more books, 27, 39, 66 books in total, and it's like 66 links on a spyglass that gives us an incredibly clear picture of who God is, where he's going, and where we stand in our relationship with him as human beings. So the Bible is like a spyglass, but it's also better than a spyglass, because we know that the Bible isn't just like a book or something that gives us a better view, but also it is powerful and alive and transforming to those who read it and dwell on it. So that's why I'm gonna be going uh, to the Old Testament, Second Kings 2, and the second reason that I'm gonna be doing 2 Kings 2 is because I love stories. And Kings, the Book of Kings, it was originally one book and it just got chopped into two for whatever reason when they were translating the Bible, Kings is a book of stories recording the historical events of the kingdom of Israel in ancient times. And there's something just about us as people that we love stories. My favorite memories as a kid are my dad coming, reading me bedtime stories. And uh, even if we look at how Jesus taught, so much of his teachings were through parables and sto- stories. So that is what we're going to be looking at today in Second Kings 2. And hopefully, by the end of my message, we'll see th- the idea that to bear the revelation of God is an incredible privilege, but also an incredible responsibility. So, uh, we'll start out, and I need to give a little bit of context for where we are here. So the book of Kings, particularly the second Kings, takes place in the divided kingdom period of Israel's history, which is a particularly dark period of Israel's history and also a particularly confusing period of Israel's history. So essentially what happens is Solomon, uh, David's son, dies. And he didn't leave the kingdom in a super good spot when he did die. He had fallen into idolatry with uh, the many foreign wives that he had taken. And taxes were incredibly high. Labor was incredibly high. And his son, Rehoboam, uh, is about to take the throne. So... Uh, it says back in uh, 1 Kings 12 where Rehoboam is taking the throne. and Rehoboam has a choice. The people come to him and they say, Rehoboam, uh, king, this your father, he had, had worked us really hard, taxes are really high. Please tone that down a little bit. We can't continue on like this. And Rehoboam turns to his advisors. And first he turns to the older advisors who served under his father. He says, what should I do? And they say, Do what the people ask, lower the taxes, don't make them work so hard, and then they'll serve you. They will be your loyal subjects. But it says in uh, 1 Kings 12, um, eight, uh, Rehoboam rejected the the advice of the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Essentially, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to be even harder than my father was. So surprise, surprise, the people of Israel didn't exactly like that idea, so the kingdom split. The southern kingdom staying loyal to Rehoboam, and including Judea, and with Jerusalem as the capital, and the northern kingdom following a guy named Jeroboam, and a capital of Samaria. So this is the context of where we are at uh, in this period of his, uh, history in Israel. And it's also incredibly dark, because the book of Kings records, and it, there's a kind of litmus test for each of the kings. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, we had, uh, it was 19 kings in total. This period lasted about 400 years. In northern kingdom of Israel, we had about 19 kings. And according to the Bible, none of those kings did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Not a g- dismal track record, actually. And Judah in the south actually didn't do much better. They had 20 kings over those 400 years. And according to the Bible, only eight of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Which, according to, you know, I'm a Bible student, I don't do math very often, but according to my math, that's still a failing grade. And ultimately, that is what happened to both of those kingdoms. As God had warned them all the way back in Deuteronomy, before they entered the land, do as I have commanded you, and I will bless you. But if you disobey me and live in rebellion, then huge long list of bad things that would happen, and it, which includes the exile and the dispersion that they ultimately faced at the hands of Assyria and Babylon. It's also important to note, though, that during this time, God wasn't silent. He wasn't just letting uh, Israel go on in their sin, nor was he, at the first drop of the hat, as soon as they sinned once, he was like, nope, you're out. Come on in, Assyria, Babylon, take care of these guys. I'm sick of them. He was very patient and long-suffering. This period lasted for 400 years. And during these 400 years, he had special people, the prophets, who delivered his word to them and called them to repent. That is who one of our main characters today, Elijah, is. He is God's prophet to Israel, calling them to repentance, to return to the Lord, lest they face the consequences of their actions. So, uh, taking it up, right, at first verse of 2 Kings 2. And uh, this is one of the things about being only able to preach one sermon. This is not a series, so we're gonna cruise through this whole book. A uh, book? No, we're gonna cruise through this whole chapter. Whew, thankfully, not the whole book. So buckle your spiritual sermonic seatbelts and we'll jump right into it. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. So right away, something that we need to talk about is this event that's about to happen. It is known that the Lord is about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. And also, I apologize in advance, you know, we're often asked the question: Is like when you get to heaven, what questions are you gonna ask God? One of the questions that I'm going to ask God is why he decided to make Elijah's servant named Elisha. <laughs> and if he was just looking ahead through time and seeing preachers being frustrated as they're trying to enunciate and trying to distinguish between the two, and I will do my best to enunciate Elijah versus Elisha, but if it sounds like I'm saying the wrong one, just extend grace and maybe assume I'm saying the right one and we'll, 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 work, we'll work through this together but so elijah is about to be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind and this is a remarkable event Uh, the idea of someone being taken up into heaven before they die is not something that happens often at all in fact previously in the bible it's only happened once in the case of enoch and that's all the way back in genesis 5. Uh, And it's talking about the lineage all the way from Adam to Noah. And it's giving these big lists of people and the lives that they lived, how long they lived. It's like, you know, Mahala lived 895 years and then he died. Jared lived 962 years and he died. And then it gets to Enoch. It says about him, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. So Enoch is another biblical figure that we see who did not die, but instead was taken directly up into heaven by God. And we don't know exactly why this is the case with Enoch and even with Elijah, but one of the prevalent theories, which I happen to agree with, was in that day, in those times, Enoch and Elijah, to the people around them, were hope for heaven and a life with God. Because if someone could be taken up, by God to be with him in heaven. That was hope that perhaps the same could be done uh, even after death for the rest of people should they live lives that were obedient to him. So that's one possibility. So but what, whether we know why or not, it was about to happen. Elijah was, a, was about to be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And then Elijah asks Elisha to stay behind says, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha essentially refuses. He says, no, as surely as you live, the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And we ask the question then, why would Elijah ask Elisha to stay behind? And then if Elijah, or even told Elisha to do that, why would Elisha refuse? And essentially, what's probably happening here is Elijah is testing Elisha The role of prophet in Israel is incredibly important and not easy. So here, Elijah is offering essentially Elisha. It's like, hey, don't have to do this. You can stay here, you can walk away now. He's testing to see if Elisha is committed both to him and to his future role as prophet to Israel. And Elisha remains loyal, remains committed says, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. He accepts the responsibility, the incredible responsibility and the incredible privilege that is to bear the revelation of God. So they went on down to Bethel and the company of prophets at Bethel came out to Elijah, Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to make, take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied but do not speak of it. And this company of prophets, it's not a, like an actual group of prophets themselves. What this is more like probably is just a group of people who are uh, recognize Elijah as prophet of God and are followers of him. Uh, they recognize his authority that comes from God, and so they obey uh, and listen to what he has to say. It's like a guild uh, almost. So they come out. Uh, and essentially Elijah is doing a kind of farewell tour to those who are loyal to him in Israel. And then they see Elisha, and they go over to him, and they say, hey, you know, you're, uh, your master's being, you know that your master's being taken away from you today, right? And this appears to be a little bit of a tender spot for Elisha, and he gives the very human reply, yep, I know, I don't want to talk about it. Please just leave me alone on this. Do not speak of it. And There's a little bit of comfort, I think, that can be found in this, that we see such human responses coming from the prophets, but also in the fact that Elisha is grieving the upcoming loss of his mentor, a person who he loves dearly and has a relationship with. And this is despite the fact that he knows that his master is about to be taken up into heaven to be with God. And it's a reminder for us that Separation and this uh, one of my wise teachers at Moody, uh, Professor Elizabeth Smith, uh, one of the pieces of wisdom that she mentioned in class just briefly but it's stuck with me ever since, is that we as humans were never intended for for separation. That's not how we were created. Uh, And when separation does occur it is like a death, Uh, whether it is actually a death or not because we are now unable to continue on in a relationship that we were created to do. And so whether that comes through actual death or because uh, someone simply leaves our lives and we are no longer able to communicate with them and continue in that relationship with them, or we think of spiritual life and spiritual death and what that really is. And spiritual death is separation from God. And spiritual life is restoration to that relationship with him. And so we see Elijah grieving this future separation from his mentor, which is like a death, and which we can see and we can understand that it is okay to grieve those who we lose and who, are, who we are separated from, even if we know they are going to heaven, because that is not what we were created for. So uh, they go on, and Elisha, Elijah. Uh, Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And the company of prophets of Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. And again, we see essentially just a repetition of the events that we just saw. Where again, Elijah extends him the opportunity. Hey, you can stay behind if you want to. Tests his commitment because to bear the revelation of God is an incredible gift, but also an incredible responsibility. And again, Elisha refuses to leave, stays with him, remains committed. And again, they go into now the town of Jericho, and the same thing happens where this company of prophets, they come up and they kind of, it's like, people poking at a sore spot that you have and just continuously jabbing. This is the second time that he's having to deal with this. He's already a little tender about it. And I can just imagine how kind of irritated he is with this kind of stuff at this point. He's like, yes, I know, don't speak of it. I'm just trying to uh, make the most of the remainder of the time that I have with my master. So then it goes on, verse six. Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Third confirmation of Elisha's commitment to Elijah and his future role. It's, and those of you who know me know that I'm a gigantic Lord of the Rings fan. And it's what I, something that kind of comes to mind as I'm reading this is just Frodo and Sam. Uh, and Sam with Frodo, and Frodo's like, you don't have to come with me, Sam, stay behind Sam, this is my burden, Sam, you don't have to do this, and Sam is just loyal to him, sticks with him to the very end. And that's what I see with Elijah and Elisha here. So, two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. So what's happening here is these men from this company of prophets are kind of following Elijah and Elisha, and it says they're uh, standing at a distance, because again, everybody apparently knows that Elijah is about to be taken up to heaven. We don't see where this is revealed in scripture, but it was revealed, and it's apparently uh, the news of the town, because everybody knows what's about to happen, and so the followers of Elijah, this company of prophets, they want to see this incredibly remarkable event. And then they get to the Jordan River, and Elijah takes his cloak, and cloak is how uh, the NIV, which I'm reading from, translates it, but I do really like how the NASB translates it when it says, his mantle, just because of the double meaning in English and the significance, because not only does mantle essentially mean cloak, but it also means role or position, and that'll come into play more later. So Elijah takes his mantle, rolls it up, and he strikes the water with it, and the water divides, a miracle that we've seen several times in the Old Testament. And they cross over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken for you? They know they're in their last moments together, and before he is taken, Elijah is asking Elisha if there's anything else he can do. There's a kind of irony that Elijah is about to be taken away, but he's asking Elisha if he has any last requests. And Elisha responds, "'Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit.' "'You have asked a difficult thing,' Elijah said. "'Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, "'it will be yours.' Otherwise not. And we ask the question here then, what does what is this double portion of your spirit that Elisha is talking about? Is it like Elijah's spirit that's gonna come down and combine with Elisha and he's gonna be like this dual spirited person? Or what is he asking here? And essentially what he's asking is for double the power of the Holy Spirit that empowered Elijah during his ministry to empower him, essentially asking to be almost twice the prophet during his time, his tenure as prophet, as Elijah was. And of course, Elijah doesn't have the authority to grant that, as only God has the authority to grant uh, how his spirit moves. So he says, you've asked a difficult thing, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. And as they were walking along, verse 11, talking together, Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more, and then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. So the event happens, and this chariot of fire and horses of fire come down and appear separate Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah is taken to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha says something that when I first read it, I'd forgotten about this, and I didn't understand what he said. Uh, he says, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. I was kinda going, what, what is he talking about here? Is he talking about his actual father? Is he talking to Elisha? What is he referencing with the chariots and horsemen of Israel? Are the fiery ones the chariots and horsemen of Israel? Or is he talking about something else? And uh, while well, I studied this, it's essentially a term of endearment and an affirmation of the importance of Elijah's role as prophet while he was that. My father, my father. Elijah is a father figure to to Elisha. They've lived life together. Elijah has taught Elisha essentially all he knows uh, about being a prophet and they've walked together for however long now. My father, my father the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Chariots and horsemen in ancient times were the powerhouse of any military. They were some of the most powerful units that you'd want to see on the battlefield in the defense or offense of any nation. And in the same way that chariots and horsemen were the powerhouse for the military defense of a nation, Elijah was the powerhouse for the spiritual defense of the nation of Israel. So as Elisha sees Elijah being raised up in the whirlwind, it's a farewell and a recognition of his role. My father, my father, you were the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And interestingly, actually on Elisha's deathbed, much later on in Kings, we see uh, the king of Israel saying the same thing to him as he's dying. My Elisha, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He grieves, he grieves the loss of relationship, the separation like a death. So after that, he picks up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah or the mantle that had fallen from Elijah, picks up the mantle that had fallen from Elijah. At this point, he is taking on the role of the prophet of Israel. But we see here, he took the cloak that had fallen from the mantle that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and the left, and he crossed over. Even after seeing Elijah be raised to heaven in a whirlwind, he still had questions. He still was feeling the grief, and he still asked God for confirmation. Where now is the Lord God of Elijah? Are you with me? Am I your prophet now? And God confirms it. And the waters part before him, just as that he saw part before his master only moments ago. So he's able to cross on dry ground. And then in this next session, section, verses 9 uh, essentially through, uh, excuse me, verses 15 through uh, 18, it's this strange section where the company of the prophets of Jericho were watching him. They, They said, the spirit of Elijah is now resting on Elisha. They recognized this. He is now the prophet of Israel. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down in some mountain or some valley. Maybe God just moved him, didn't really take him up uh, to heaven. He just moved him somewhere else. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too ashamed to refuse. All right, fine. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, he was staying in Jericho. He said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? Essentially, what did I tell you guys? I saw him being taken up into heaven. I saw the fiery chariots and horsemen. He's in heaven now. He's not anywhere on this earth anymore. So these next two sections, first verses 19 through 22, it's a healing of the water is the title in my Bible. And while he's in Jerusalem, excuse me, while he's in Jericho, the men of the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well-situated, as you can see, but the water's bad, the land's unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw salt in it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Where the message of God and the messenger of God is received and listened to and accepted, it brings healing and restoration. And it is further confirmation of Elisha's role as prophet as he is continuing on in these miracles this next section, verse 23 to the end of the chapter here, from there Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And then he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there returned to Samaria. Let's pray. <laughs> <laughs> this is a strange passage, a little tricky. I wasn't sure that I was going to do it at first when I was looking over this, because it's like, man, this is just such a bizarre section. We read this, and it's like, what, what is going on here? It's like some kids come out and make fun of Elisha for being bald, and so he calls them bears out to maul him. It's like, what? This doesn't sound right. Would God do something like this? And this is actually a se- section that atheist, uh, atheistic apologists of sorts, they've used this to point out, it's like, how could a good God do something like this? And it's caused a lot of people to have a lot of questions. And the shorter answer to this, because I don't have a ton of time to dig into it, uh, you could, there have been books written on this passage. But we need to recognize a couple things. There are clues in the passage that give us a little bit more information that kind of help us figure out what was going on here. So the first one is location. This is outside the city of Bethel. And Bethel in the northern kingdom, uh, we read actually previously uh, in uh, Golden Cas of Bethel Dan in 1 Kings 12, uh, and we're not gonna read it for time's sake, but Jeroboam, when he's setting up the northern kingdom, Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jerusalem is where the temple was, and the temple was where the Lord said, this is where you will do your sacrifices, this is where the priests will be, you will worship me here, essentially because if you set up other places of worship, you're going to mess it up. So we have this place that you will worship me at the temple in Jerusalem. But this was the problem for Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, because if all of Uh, if the people of his kingdom had to go to the southern kingdom of Judah to Jerusalem to worship, that would undermine his authority. So he builds two golden calves, ring any bells of a certain Exodus story, and tells the people of Israel that these, this is the God, these are the gods that have brought you out of the land of Egypt, you can worship them. And he sets up these two golden calves, one at Bethel and one at a city called Dan. So this city Is a center of idolatrous worship and largely rejects the prophets of God. The second thing that we can see is this word that is used here for boys or youths. Uh, It's translated differently, and depending on what version you're reading, mine says youths. And we need to, you know, when we first read this, and we just kind of get this idea of like elementary school kids, and that's part of the horror of the picture and what makes us question this. But the word that is used here for youths or for boys, it has a fairly wide range of possibilities as far as age goes. Uh, We see the same word uh, used to describe Joseph when he was around 17 years old, or even Isaac in the Old Testament when he was probably around 25 years old. And those are just two examples, but there's a wide range, a wide array in the Old Testament of uses of this word that is used here for boys that doesn't necessarily mean little kids. In addition to this, it says that when the two she-bears come out, they maul how many of them? Forty-two. This wasn't just some gaggle of preschoolers. This was more likely a gang of young men who very likely intended harm to God's prophet as they mocked him for what had just happened, as they said, go up, Baldy. Yes, Baldy was... See, it's, baldness was seen as a blemish in the uh, Israel society back then, and so that was a, kind of a basic low-blow insult. But also, the go-up was a direct mocking of what had just happened with Elijah. And they were questioning his role as prophet, and potentially even threatening violence against him, as they said the equivalent of, go up, meet your maker. So, this is not God and Elijah cursing little boys for calling someone bald and having a bear maul them because of it. What this is, is again, God confirming Elisha's role as prophet and defending him against a potential threat. And that is the point of this entire narrative. It's the entire point of Kings. We have to realize that even with this, it's not a treaties on why God is good and how God is good that was implied to any of the both the author and the audience that was reading this book the author was writing this book so that the readers could learn the lessons of history from these stories and the lesson to be learned here is that when you reject God's messengers you reject God's prophet it brings ruin Whereas when you accept them and you listen, it brings life and restoration. So, that's 2 Kings 2. What about now for us? How does this apply to us? And earlier on, way back earlier on, Moses, who, you know, told them, uh, told, warned Israel. It's like, live obediently, this will happen. Live disobediently, this will happen. He told them about the prophets that would come. And he indicated that there would be a specific prophet who would come, who would be like Moses. And in the end of Deuteronomy, it clarifies that. It says he would be like Moses in performing miraculous deeds and how he spoke with God face to face. Throughout the Old Testament, they were looking and waiting for this prophet. For us, we know that this prophet has come. And that prophet is Jesus Christ, God himself speaking with the authority of God himself as opposed to relaying messages and we've seen we just saw here with Elijah and the bears and the boys to reject God's messenger is a severe crime for which there is punishment but if we look at Hebrews 2 and chapter 2 and 3 to reject God himself who is so much greater than angels or prophets punishment for a regular prophet might be bears but the punishment For God himself, in rejecting what he has to say personally, is separation from him. So, we listen to what Jesus has to say as prophet to us. And we recognize that he did give us instructions. And as Dave alluded to uh, when uh, he first introduced me, so much of my heartbeat, so much of my passion, why I'm going into youth ministry, is because of discipleship. And I go to the Great Commission, what Jesus told us. Go therefore, Matthew 19, go therefore and make disciples. This should be our passion. This is our heartbeat as the church. It's essentially why we are here on this earth. Because we have this hope. This hope of the good news of the gospel message. This bold hope that we can place in God that will not put us to shame which please come next week so you can hear uh, our youth pastor, Jordan Erickson. He's going to be elaborating on that a little bit more, and that's going to be fantastic. But we have this hope that we know, through having heard the gospel message of hope, that we have confirmed confirmed, through God's revelation to us through this scripture that gives us a wonderful close-up picture of who he is, how much he loves us, direction for our lives, and a hope for a future outside of this fallen sinful world and we can't keep that to ourselves. To bear the revelation of God, as Elijah and Elisha did in the Old Testament, and now as we do as believers today, is both an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. We need to be like Elijah, boldly declaring what God commanded him to declare, obediently discipling other generations of believers who will be doing the same thing, It's what Lakewood did for me as I was discipled by men uh, in the youth group, by the youth pastors that I had, by the various mentors I had from my small groups. And it's what, uh, for my internship right now, I'm with Brainerd Youth for Christ, and it's what Brainerd Youth for Christ is doing is they're reaching out to the youth of this community as they are reaching and intentionally entering into relationships with them out of the love of Christ to share this good news and to disciple them life on life. And it's what each of us need to be doing. We don't all need to be great evangelists like D.L. Moody or powerful speakers like David Platt or great apologists like Ravi Zacharias. What we do need to do in whatever capacity that God has given us, whatever location that we are, is we need to be lovingly engaging intentionally in the lives of people around us, sharing the good news of Christ dead and resurrected. Our heartbeat of the church needs to be in rhythm and in sync with the passion and the love of Christ, glorifying him and sharing this while we're here on earth. Because we have this news, we have this revelation, and to bear it is a great privilege and an incredible responsibility. So, to conclude, we are to be like Elijah and Elisha. We are obedient to Christ, obedient to God, making disciples, passing on the stories of God's greatness from generation to generation together as a church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are so incredibly good to us, people that are completely undeserving, that you've made yourself known to us through the ages, initially through angels and prophets, and finally through Jesus, yourself. God made flesh dwelling with us, revealing your love and your desire for us. May we heed what you've said to us and may we be faithful stewards of this word, this good news that you've given us. Give us an irrepressible passion for the lost that we might share this hope we have with them in your love and give us the wisdom, guidance, and empowerment by your spirit to do this. We love you and we thank you for all that you do for us. And in Jesus' name, amen.